This is the Voluntarian Podcast with your host Abe Collier, based in Odessa, Ukraine. Here we discuss humanitarian aid, working in an international context, and volunteering. This podcast is a production of Dignity Aid International. Your donations can help us provide humanitarian assistance in this conflict. Please find a link in the description or comments. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Now, on to the podcast. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Voluntarian Podcast, a production of Dignity Aid International and friends here in Odessa, Ukraine. I'm joined today by Sergei Panaschuk, a Ukrainian, an independent journalist, a volunteer humanitarian, and a friend. Sergei was born in Odessa, Ukraine, a few years before the fall of the Berlin Wall. He's the founder of Save UA Media, an organization we'll revisit later and has some extraordinary perspectives on the humanitarian response and the situation of the overall conflict. So, Sergei, thank you for coming. Thank I you really for having me. I really appreciate you coming. I always wanted to be a star, you know. <laughs> well, you're a star today. <laughs> Let's start from the beginning. Um, could you tell me about your childhood? Growing up in Odessa, during the fall of the Soviet Union, a lot of action. What was your childhood like? Uh, so, I was born seven years before uh, the collapse of Soviet Union. And... Uh, it was very interesting experience, you know, to grow up in the 90s. 90s uh, have this uh, air, uh, which like everybody, everybody from Soviet Union know what 90s were, because 90s were a hell. Mm-hmm. It, it was hell on earth. Um, so I uh, came from the district which was populated by the junkies, uh, uh, gangsters, and uh, and normal people as well because like they were all mixed, but it was the it was the it was a crazy time really. Uh, so uh, sometimes when I was like going outside, I um, was finding myself in a horror movie, like a zombie movie, because there was a, this district called Palermo, with where there was a base of uh, drug dealers. So it was like the whole district. Uh, where people were just making drugs, making drugs like uh, selling heroin, and of course, of course, p- police was um, in cahoots with them, so uh, nobody really cared from the police what was going on. And uh, the point is, like people were going uh, from the from that district, from that village, so they were walking like zombies, like. And uh, that was like experience. Ex- there was like lifetime experience. So uh, when I see when I see horror movies about zombies, well, it's not. You should you should actually hire them. You should go back in time and hire these people, because they are they, they were genuine, you know, and scary or oh, fucking scary. Oh shit! I should. I should no, that's great. I, I shouldn't have said. Don't worry about it. That's what we're here for. Whatever comes. Whatever. It so, comes. this was. This was particularly bad after the fall of the Soviet Union, right? It started right after the Soviet Union be, uh, uh, because uh, people, uh, seems like people like lost their boundaries. They uh, lost uh, the sense of a state. Uh, and the like, police didn't care much. I mean, the police had their own problems. And police actually was was collaborating with the, with, with the crimes there, actually. So there was a there was a joke because uh, they were not getting 
they were not get paid of course because in the nineties nobody nobody get paid and like people were like people from uh, from the west from the foreign countries could like wonder how do, how how could you live if you're if you're not get paid like for two years or something like that well that's what we did you know that that's I, I'm sitting here right now but I I got through these times and I was a child back then. Uh, and that, so there was a joke about the police that uh, so a, a, a cop came to his uh, chief and uh, asked him for a, for a salary, and he was like, "Do you have a gun? Yes. So why are, why are you asking me for the salary? Use your gun. Just use your gun." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's that that's what that's what nineties were. And uh, one th- thing that happened after the collapse union uh, of the Soviet Union, uh, there was no private property before that. Mm-hmm. And uh, after people were able to, uh, the, the flats they were living were, uh, the, the, the flats belonged to the state, mm-hmm. to the Soviet Union before that. But after the collapse, they started to, to like have them as a property. So a lot of people just sell, sold their, uh, uh, their apartments because they didn't have money mm-hmm. for one thing. And for another, they, want, they wanted to, well, a lots of alcoholics, a lot, a lots of people started drinking after the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, because it was a, such a big, uh, such a big shift. And uh, and it was like this: so uh, someone sold their flats, his flat, like, and in one week he could he could buy only a loaf of bread for what is left because there was inflation, prices were rising, like <clears throat> the bread. In the morning, cost like for instance, like ten grivna. In the like in, in a few hours, twenty grivna, and in the evening, one hundred grivna. So it was the hyperinflation, uh, and the prices were rising like with every hour. Mm-hmm. And nobody like wasn't prepared for this, and nobody even understand that what's what's going on and how for how long is is going to continues like that. Mm-hmm. So how did this period end? What was sort of, how did things calm down economically and get on a more stable footing? Uh, I think uh, I, f- I think it ended like um, towards to the two thousands, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know how it ha- how that happened. You know, so like in two thousands we sort of started to be like a normal country in, in economic economically mm-hmm. uh, probably well it probably it took time to to make this transition from the f- from the soviet union to some kind of a democratic capitalism or whatever hmm. Be- because like when uh, Ukraine became independent, there was an, uh, uh, literally, literally zero money mm. because everything was stored in the bank in Moscow. So they didn't have anything. Um, the infrastructure was uh, like the factories were connected to the factories all over the Soviet Union. Uh, so uh, uh, economy, economy was in ruins like from... from from the very beginning of the of the Ukrainian independence, mm-hmm. and uh, like elites, people from Communist Party who be, who who became the mayors or deputies in the in the parliament, they were only uh, interested in uh, appropriation of the 
a state's property, like mm-hmm. factories. So they were, there was this this word. I don't know if if that make makes any sense. Privatization. So mm-hmm. they were like. Uh, so this this was like a. Uh, a factory belong to the state, and but but you can actually have it as your own if you pay like some small amount, like really small, like like ridiculous, because like it was all, all it was already decided, like uh, like friends of friends. Yeah, friends of friends, nepotism, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean that's that's how they still uh, that's how they still like uh, the 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 whole Ukraine and how the oligarchs became oligarchs. And uh, nobody, of course, not everyone survived through these uh, times. I mean, from the, the so-called delight and the, there, there was actually there was a, a gang shootings in my district. I saw I, once I was play, playing in the, in, the, in the basketball um, playground, and I saw people in in Lada with the, with their with their rifles <laughs> that was that was it was quite an experience and one time my friend asked me to go out um, and I like I said like, well I don't I didn't feel like it and like in uh, uh, half half an hour after in the football field a uh, uh, gangster was shot so hmm. yeah that's 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 the inspiring story so uh, growing up in this environment you must have had a lot of ideas about how you wanted to get out of it, but you became a journalist first, right? Well, I don't know if I became a journalist or not. I mean, maybe it's a lifelong, lifelong journey. I don't know. I guess in some ways, becoming anything is a lifelong journey. Yeah. But you tried to be a journalist, and how I'm, did that happen? I'm trying to. Yeah, I'm still. I'm still trying to. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't lost my hope. How did you start? Uh, well, I heard a voice in my head. Right? <laughs> no, uh, I. I heard the voice, but it was my my voice of my own, of course. <laughs> uh, I was uh, like I like reading newspapers, and I, I I like the. I mean, it's maybe it's like funny to hear from, from someone. But when I was a teenager, I liked articles. I liked the way, the words were, uh, put together, and uh, I liked reading. So uh, I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe I I should have. I should have become a writer, not a journalist, because these things are not the same. Yeah, they are not the same. Yeah. Uh, so uh, when I was uh, like nineteen, I like uh, I was in the university. I was studying Ukrainian and Bulgarian language and literature, but I wanted to be a journalist. So uh, I just f- I found out that there was a new newspaper, mm-hmm. this new newspaper, sports newspaper, and there was this guy. Uh, who I like a lot. Like I like how he he writes. I didn't know that he was like twenty three. I was nineteen. He was twenty three. But mm-hmm. like, I like the way he he write. I don't I don't like anymore because like it's it, it's not how you should write. But <laughs> at that time it was it was like oh my god he's a god. So and uh, and I I I I got this a copy of this newspaper and I found the phone number. I called them. I said, I'm Sergi. I don't know anything. I don't know anything about anything, but I really like to be a journalist. And I, but in the best thing is, but there is there's 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 one good thing that like you don't have to pay me. And they were like, okay, but we will pay you. Come. Uh, and I was so uh, I came to this to this newspaper. It was a weekly newspaper, and I was attending like uh, sports ma- sports games, like volleyball play. 
Uh, and, and I they got, paid you. They they did yeah, how much? They, so they they paid me like seven grivnias for 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 uh, for three articles, right? And, and that was like uh, one dollar and a half or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I found good use for this for this money because it was it was uh, what, what was it? it was December it was it was freaking cold. And uh, outside, they were, they were selling tea and a sausage. I got I got myself a tea and a sausage. It's a good purchase with your salary. Yeah. So you started out in a local newspaper. Um, yeah. And did you stay local your whole career? I, I thought that I was born for great things. Well, I had this delusion in my mind. You never know. We'll see. Yeah, and uh, so uh, I, I, I was there like for 18 months or something like that. Then I, uh, I got some connections in, uh, in the Ukrainian capital, uh, in Kiev. And I was invited to work in the national newspaper where I was then 21. So, and I was invited to work in the national newspaper. It was tabloid called mm. Blick, uh, owned by some Swiss media group uh, mm. they own uh, owns or i don't know what they get there oh no they are exist they have they have blick uh, switzerland uh, still mm. yeah so it was owned by the swiss group uh, and they wanted to make a great newspaper the greatest newspaper in ukraine with the 1 million with the circulation of 1 million copy mm. did it happen no that was the decline of the newspapers at that time too. So it's not totally not, it's their not, fault. It's, it's, well, <laughs> I have a different opinion about it, but but maybe I but maybe I should keep it to myself. So I was invited to Kiev and I worked there in, in the sports department. And basically, I was invited only because I, because I I could barely speak English back back then. And uh, like back then, it was three two thousand and six, like nobody. Spoke spoke English back then. Mm -hmm. Now everybody speaks English mm -hmm. in Ukraine. Like, well, not everybody, but a lot of people, right? Uh, quite a few, yes. Yeah, quite a few people. But, but like, 18 years ago, it wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. So I was super valuable for for them, and uh, and uh, that's how I that's how I got got or like in the big journalism, yeah. And when I mm -hmm. started like the the journey, because like. Before that, it was just 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 a straw, and then then it was a big journey. Mm -hmm. So you were in Kiev for how long? Mm, uh, uh, I think like for three years in the first run, and then I got back in two thousand fourteen for for another for another two years or something like that. Two thousand fourteen. Yeah. Speaking of which, was the time of big events? Was it related to? I think in 2014 we had the Maidan uh, protests, yeah, it started, as well as the invasion. It started in the autumn of 2013. Uh-huh. And did you go to Kiev to cover those events to some degree? Uh, I came to Kiev already after uh, after the end of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came to Kiev because Kiev has more opportunities than others. I mean, obviously. Uh, but I, I I didn't land like a job in Kiev. I I, I started working with the international news agency, mm. uh, like like a, like like remotely, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I was I was writing stories from Ukraine, like from the post-Soviet uh, countries, basically, mm -hmm. and uh, the agency was sending these uh, articles to the uh, British newspapers mostly. So let's return to 2014 and then 
maybe step back a, lit, a bit and look at the wider picture. So in 2014, we had the Maidan protests. Could you describe a little bit what those were for our audience? How those came about? The Maidan protests were uh, the result of the inconsistent politics of the uh, former president Yanukovych uh, because he um, he was elected as a pro-Russian whatever whatever he was uh, and then he uh, switched his uh, uh, switched his ideas switched, switched his politics like more to more pro-west pro-western and uh, Ukraine uh, should have signed a, a treaty about uh, association with European Union, which everybody welcomed. But like uh, after talks with with Putin, and uh, I think I think um, I think Russia gave like five billions or three billions uh, dollars as a loan before that. Mm-hmm. And Yanukovych said, "Okay, so we're not going to sign this treaty anymore." And that's how Maidan started. If 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 I'm not too old, if and if my memory is not like going wild, then it was like that. And also, be, also because like uh, Yanukovych was uh, was not a good president. I mean, uh, well, that is the explanation of why that happened from. Uh, like official standpoint, which you can probably find in Wikipedia, mm-hmm. uh, if that's what you're asking me, or if you wanna, <laughs> if you wanna hear my own my own thoughts about it, please expand. Expand as a universe, right? So because <laughs> universe is expanding. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, the Maidan was. Uh, um, it's complicated. It's 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 complicated. Probably as a quantum physics. Uh, the Maidan was started like every political riot in post-Soviet countries. Uh, it it couldn't have started like by people, just by people. So someone was standing after behind. Someone were standing behind this. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a thought that there was, it was like two oligarchs, Kolomoisky and Renata Medov, because uh, Yanukovych just want well, um, Yanukovych wanted to keep the whole Ukraine for himself, so he started to uh, how like to, play uh, both sides against each other, play the West against Russia and Russia yes, against the and West. Yes, and also he wanted to push oligarchs from the map mm-hmm. and to have more. Um, to have more more wells to accumulate more wells, so took took their factories, took their um, businesses they had and whatever. So so there were there were cases and uh, uh, these two they didn't like it. Of course, if they didn't like it, I mean, why it's, it's happening to us? Because we're gods, we're gods ourselves. So we need to we need to figure out. So we need to do something. So I mean, um, so this was used. This is a political uh, um, technique that was that was used by oligarchs of creating, of creating Maidan, and of course in the Maidan there were people who were who were genuinely who, who genuinely believed that they are standing here for democratic values for the independence, but I mean they were they were put there like um, so it was it was masterminded but it was but it was masterminded really like 
like like um beautifully so it's like they were pushed there but they didn't know about it right mm -hmm. uh and uh, like the the biggest sign of that the Maiden was not like not happened on song like like a big bank right so uh it was uh in i think it was in november when the in november or in december when the uh, the riot police berkut uh was ordered to disperse the crowd in the in the maidan mm -hmm. and um i know from the reliable sources that the riot police were kept there for like 20 hours or 24 hours without without food without being able to go to the toilets uh, and it was uh, it was a freezing cold so they were put there for like 20 hours or something like that uh, they were standing in, um, against uh, the crowd so mm -hmm. here is the barcode here is the crowd mm -hmm. and at some point a group of uh, hooligans or teenagers or whatever came and they started throwing rocks and uh, ooh, I don't know bottles in, into the barcode so they they attacked they attacked Berkut and they like vanished like in, in one minute. Mm -hmm. After that, Berkut got the command to disperse the crowd and they did violently. They, they, they I don't know if they killed anyone, but uh, they beat people really hard and some of them became disabled. And like, it was wrong, of course, it was wrong, but it was orchestrated. So there, there was like two groups which which was just like pushed into each other by, 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 by by someone it didn't happen on its own mm -hmm. it's it, it it wasn't like uh you know it's not like the universe just started from the from from the small dot from the big bang it, it didn't happen on so no mm -hmm. and after that uh after that another things happened then uh well it it all it all ended up like in the um that unikovich got so scared that, that, that this he fled so so he was scared like a girl and he he he, he, he fled crying but he took but he took like uh there were trucks there were trucks that were taking uh, cash from his mansion hmm. like lots of trucks and uh, he uh, went to severodonetsk to the uh, town in the donetsk region in the east and from severodonetsk he wanted to ask putin to help him to restore the power because there was a military coup mm -hmm. But uh, and uh, in Severodonetsk, he wanted also to uh, gather uh, other um, politicians, other people from the parliament, but nobody came. Hmm. Nobody came because uh, he lost the authority. When he fled? When he fled. Mm -hmm. So there were people, there were probably oligarchs paying people to protest against him, but then possibly the protest got out of hand. And he well, left. I don't, I don't think I don't think that oligarchs were paying people. Like uh, I, as I said, it is complicated as a quantum figure. So people mm -hmm. there were genuine. So they were genuinely, but, but because I mean, it's how it's happened. You know, you are standing in the crowds and you see riot police are going and like trying to kill your friend who is standing right behind you. What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. You will try to defend him. You will try to attack. You will tell the, you will tell this to other people. And you will you will get uh, like the, uh, the you will get uh, the crowd uh, you, you you will just bring the bigger crowd mm -hmm. and if you are if well if you see that they are going that they that they willing to kill you then you will try to find your firearms and defend yourself like the like the next day mm -hmm. so it, the people were not paid 
the situation was created. They created the situation which uh, which started. So they started the process. The oligarchs started the process, and they were not able to be in charge of this process anymore. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it, it got out of hands like like this. Now I remember watching these protests from the West. I would have been just finishing university at that time, and we were excited. This was something that felt very momentous. It felt like a move of Ukraine out of the post-Soviet sphere into a more Western orientation, more aligned with the EU, more aligned with international markets. Do you, from the inside, was it perceived that same way? Were people excited about this shift into more of an internationalist or Western world in, during well, Maidan? It's hard to... It's hard to like to, to to answer this question because like well people were divided, mm -hmm. and uh, what people in the West is also like hard to comprehend for for people in the West like if you have uh, so Yanukovych was a, was a, I don't want to say half totalitarian but like he wanted he wanted to become a dictator mm -hmm. uh, the same as Putin hmm. in in Russia so he wanted to have all powers like uh, in his hands. And when you encounter a person like that, so if you're starting a riot or revolution against a person like that, he's not just going to uh, give you the power, you know, like, okay, so I see there is a lot of people, I respect you, thank you for expressing your feelings, here, here are more powers to you, you know, mm -hmm. like, I mean, that's not, that's never gonna happen, so the Maidan and revolution couldn't, uh, by definition, they couldn't end up with... Uh, with without blood you know or or without some shit but like nobody expected that actually the uh the people can overthrow an authorities nobody nobody expected this and it it only happened because of this move of Yanukovych who fled it's like uh it's like they say that that, that uh, if we went ever quantum computer it will be able to forecast the future mm -hmm. but there are like a lots of invariables, and this one would—I don't think that any quantum computer would ever could could have predict. I even I remember it was a big shock. So, speaking of which, at that point, there was a big shift. A new, an interim president was brought in, right? And within a few days, there were Russian forces in Crimea and in Donbas, right? Yeah, it happened. It, ha it happened either either. Uh, Right after the Yunukovych uh, fled, mm -hmm. or like in a few days, and uh, well, everybody in Ukraine understood that it was Russians mm -hmm. who uh, invaded invaded Crimea, and uh, these guys in the green uniform that they they were Russians. Like everybody understands this, and I was I, I thought that actually there was going to be war like 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 the one we have now. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was shocked, of course, because because wow, I I wasn't in the maiden. I haven't started it, and now <laughs> and now there is a and now there is a repercussions and consequences. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I was shocked with the, with everything with what was happening, but everything what what what's happening has happened for a reason. Unfortunately, for because like uh, everything is happening for a reason. So. Let's see, where were we? Crimea, I believe. And Russian troops coming into Crimea, Russian-backed troops coming into Donbass, Donetsk, and Luhansk. This happened just 
right after Maidan, right? Right, yeah. So why didn't this escalate into a full-scale war like we see now? Uh, because uh, it's an interesting question. Because it was uh, the situation was different in, in Crimea and uh, in the rest of Ukraine, uh, the situation was different. Uh, people in Crimea were like brainwashed from the beginning, from the nineties. Mm. Uh, there were uh, the Russian uh, black fleet uh, stationed in in Crimea, and lots of politicians who came uh, who were coming to Crimea, like Zatulin and Zhirinovsky. And they were uh, agitating. Uh, they were they were um, uh, pushing this idea that that Crimea is is Russia, that like Russian people live there, and Ukraine didn't do anything like to counter uh, to counterattack this propaganda. Basically, nothing. So uh, the pe people in Crimea were prepared for for something like that. So they. Uh, they were there were there were protests from the Crimean Tartars, mm -hmm. uh, but they are not uh, uh, pretty small percentage of the yeah, population, right? Uh, yes, they are. That's like, the native. There are few few hundred thousand people. Uh, they are considered as a native uh, people in the in the Crimea. Mm -hmm. So uh, the people were. Um, I don't know. One of the reasons is that, that the people were ready for, for this to happen, mm -hmm. probably. Uh, because the, the propaganda in Crimea, Russian propaganda in Crimea, was very strong like, since the 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, because the, the president was an, an, an interim president mm -hmm. and uh, they didn't have a will to fight mm -hmm. back then, so there was no uh, order given to fight with the people in the green uniform. Mm -hmm. So basically they uh, um, encircled every Ukrainian um, military uh, units in, in Crimea and uh, forced them to lay down the weapon. Mm -hmm. After that we learned I think in a few months or in a year, we learned that uh, um, almost fifty percent of Ukrainian uh, soldiers who were who, who served in Ukrainian army stayed in Crimea and joined the Russian forces. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the difference between the Crimea and other parts of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, in Donetsk, in Lugansk, uh, they managed to the Russians managed to take the power. Because uh, I don't know, I wasn't there like in these regions, but I believe that the propaganda there also were, were, was very strong, mm -hmm. and uh, politicians who politicians for party of regions who were Russians, they were trying to paint this picture that everybody hates people from Donetsk and Lugansk, especially in Western Ukraine. Mm -hmm. They were trying to uh, clash to people from Donbass and from the West together mm -hmm. and like, uh, so there was like a lot of hate speech, a lot of also a lot of uh, Russian propaganda in Donbass and, and Lugansk. And also like uh, the, the police were, were collaborating with, uh, with the occupants back then and that's why it happened in Donetsk and Lugansk. It, it also, they managed the um, rioters, the Russians managed to um, 
take the administrative building in Kharkiv in, in Mariupol, Mariupol, uh, but uh, the, these cities were taken. Uh, I think Mariupol was was taken back by Azov, mm -hmm. and the Kharkiv by uh, riot police. By Ukrainians in both cases. Yeah, yeah, of course, mm -hmm. of course, yeah. And, and Ukrainian military forces managed to stop Russian-backed forces in Donetsk and Luhansk. The problem, as well. the problem is that that we didn't have any military, we didn't have mm. any any real army, uh, because the the program and the way uh, Yanukovych was operating was actually to destroy Ukrainian army, mm. and they were say, they were saying like, oh, who do we? Fight with we don't need this large army and it was decreasing mm -hmm. the amount was decreasing and I think back then it was like fifty thousand mm. and uh, and of course this army wasn't trained properly and nothing like uh, and I remember I remember like in two thousand seven or in two thousand eight there was a article published in one of the leading newspapers uh, Sigodna today which w was owned by Renat Ahmetov, one of the oligarchs from mm -hmm. the from the Donbas region, and the article was about what will what will happen if Russia if Russia will invade Ukraine, mm -hmm. and it was uh, like so. This is the article published. But maybe you still can find it in the internet. And an article that says, like, well, what will happen? Like, uh, Ukrainian soldiers will, ju will just surrender. Mm -hmm. They will just sur surrender, and Russia will, like, in a few days, Russia will be able to occupy all the area until the Dnipro River, so half of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how, how, how is it possible that such article could be, like, published and, like, uh, like no one... No one brought any attention to this. Like it was, it wasn't done. It was done on purpose, of course. I mean, mm -hmm. So they were they were preparing this long time ago. Uh, and uh, but like people would not. I mean, of course, there were people in Odessa because Odessa is complicated city. Let's put it this way. Mm -hmm. And uh, Russian propaganda here were, were very was very strong, and we had a pro-Russian uh, ch uh, channel. Atebe owned by uh, oligarch, uh, local oligarch, oligarch Markov, who was f um, financed by FSB. It was it was obvious. FSB is the internal F security forces. FSB of is the no. F FSB is the um, successor of KGB of Russian KGB. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so uh, it was uh, this TV channel was founded by the Russian uh, special in uh, intelligence services in order to bring the Russian propaganda here. And they were, they were, I mean, they were quite successful, but uh, with the amount of money, like there were billions of dollars spent on this, of course, and these billions of dollars were just uh, hijacked by people like like oligarchs who own this channel. And uh, uh, so uh, the Russians spend like billions of dollars for through their sleeping to the sleeping agents to this to the pro-Russian journalists to create this idea to brainwash people so they would like love the idea of having Russia here, but it didn't happen. It, it didn't happen because like most of the money was just stolen. Hmm. This, this is the part of the Russian culture. You know, you this is how you live. You know. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, the Putin was informed that everybody here love, would love this idea, mm -hmm. everybody, and that's why that's why they started this, um, uh, like, uh, 
people's initiative that that pe people are are uh, um, taking the administrative buildings and and pro proclaiming some some people republic like like it was in uh, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk in 2014. In 2014, in yes. Yeah. So, uh, they were trying to do this in Odessa on the, on the second May. There was a clash between pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian group. The pro-Russian group was was uh, consisted by the criminals, uh, which were identified before they had they had firearms, they had guns, mm -hmm. and it was orchestrated by the one of the Polish chiefs. Mm -hmm. And uh, but it happened that way that that uh, pro um, pro Ukrainian group uh, learned about this their plans and uh, they uh, brought large larger amount of people and even without firearms. Uh, they managed to overtake and disperse this crowd, mm -hmm. and after that uh, they they went to the Kulikova field where there is a uh, where there was a, a camp house of the pro-Russian protesters. Mm -hmm. Pro-Russian protesters locked them locked themselves in a, in a trade union house, mm -hmm. uh, and the crowd came to the trade union house and they asked them to leave. They didn't want to. And then started, and uh, then started, and someone, someone in the trade house started to shooting from a from from a K, uh, from a K at, mm -hmm. at the at the pro-Ukrainian crowd. Then situation went out of out of the hand, and uh, pro-Ukrainian crowd uh, started uh, 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 um, trying to break in into trade union house. So, some of them started to light Molotov cocktails. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not clear actually, because Molotov cocktails were, th were thrown from the trade union house as well, mm -hmm. and into the trade union house as well. So at some point it uh, went uh, on fire. Uh, the Ukrainian crowd, pro-Ukrainian crowd, managed to get inside the trade union house. Uh, so there was there were clashes. Some people uh, got some people got killed by the fire mm -hmm. some of them got killed by the smoke ah uh, but I, I i actually treat this as a episode of the civil war in uh, another side because it was it was um it, it was uh it was real it was real war it was a fight mm -hmm. it was a fight for ukraine and uh that's how Odessa still is uh, still is ukraine because if if uh, Ukrainians, if pro-Ukrainians and Ukrainians would lose this battle, mm -hmm. we would have we would have the administrative building taken, and we I don't remember who who the, who the mayor was back then. Was it was it Truhanov already, or mm -hmm. was it another mayor? But it doesn't matter because um, the local authorities would uh, back up mm -hmm. the this crowd, and they would be, and the police would back up everyone. So there was this was the it was just the only way to defend like the things that they believed in. It was the only way to show Putin as well and and the Russians that this is not this is not a pro-Russian city. You can't do the things the things you did in Crimea and Donetsk and Luhansk. Mm -hmm. So that that's how that's how Odessa is not part of Russia mm -hmm. and will never be, as we understand it right now mm -hmm. so the, the the reason why uh, the war didn't escalate back then was that because uh, the Putin was uh, disinformed about that everyone wants to uh, be a part of Russia here 
it wasn't true. So he spent money in vain. That brings to mind a question I have to ask then, because it seems like to, in some way, the same thing that happened just a year and a half ago in 2022, and we'll get to that, where Putin seems to have been misinformed about the state of public opinion in Ukraine, happened also in 2014. Do you feel like he repeated that mistake? Of course. Interesting. Of course. Because, well, there was another, there's another opinion, but like, I, uh, well, they came, they came, uh, they came in, um, when they came into Kiev region, uh, they were with their parade uniforms, right? So they really believed that there will be no uh, real... Uh, mm -hmm. In 2022. In 2022, so they yeah. did, they didn't believe that actually the Ukrainian army and Ukrainians will will, will fight them. Mm -hmm. So they they really believed to be like a, like a stroll. Yeah. They will just came with their with their tanks and weapons. Everybody will will be running scared, and that 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 will be it. Well, we'll revisit that, but let's return first. So the period from 2014 to 2022, there was fighting in the east but most of Ukraine was at peace. Where did your career go from there? Did you continue being a journalist? I guess, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was working with this agency, and also I, I was in the... I, well, I can say I was in the front line in the Lugansk. There was a cold t t town called Shastya, which is now, uh, which is now destroyed. Mm -hmm. And in the hands of the Russians, uh, I, I was there with the with the Swedish journalist and with uh, some soldiers, and I was reporting from I'm almost re reporting from the from well I, I was writing stories from Ukraine and the post-Soviet countries uh, until the twenty twenty two, and after twenty after the war uh, broke, of course I I I became a I became a war correspondent. <laughs> what is it? An animal, probably. Ah, probably mm -hmm. a cat. Yeah, or, probably. Or, or pigeons. <coughs> uh, where should we start? Um, after the war, after the war broke out, after twenty twenty two, you continued as a journalist. Ah. Uh, yeah, you may say I started being journalistic. <laughs> Why so? Well, uh, well, I became a journalist because I wanted to do some. Well, I wa I, I want to do something that matter. Mm -hmm. And uh, but like it was never so important to be a journalist mm -hmm. as uh, after twenty four February. Mm -hmm. uh, because someone should have should have reported about the war crimes for one thing and for another thing, um, the uh, Russian propaganda machine was so huge and so powerful. So they 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 had like uh, lots of TV channels in uh, Europe mm -hmm. and in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, like Russia Today or, or other other TV channels that were um, broadcasting the Russian view on the, on the, on the things and Russian view and the things is completely backwards. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and I, I started to work as a as a as, as a fixer like from the from the first day. Um, 
with the foreign journalists who came here from France, from uh, Germany, from uh, Belgium, uh, from other countries. Uh, some of them uh, didn't have uh, like a clue what was happening, and someone wanted to say a Nazi, like like show me the Nazi, where, where are mm-hmm. the Nazis, you know? So uh, I would have to like to explain them what's happening, what's happening here, and showing the real things, like showing whoa, the real truth. So I was their um, hands and whatever. Mm-hmm. So I was helping them to bring the the reality, the real picture to their countries. And mm-hmm. uh, that's how I think I serve my country as well, because uh, uh, I was I was fighting Russian propaganda mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. And I also I also wrote articles for the German media uh, about Ukraine and uh, to tell the truth and to fight the Russian propaganda. Mm-hmm. And I think it was worth it. And from there you got involved in humanitarian aid. How would, how did that happen? Uh, as a volunteer. Well, I the, my first my first encounter with the with the volunteers was of course after the 24 February. Mm-hmm. I met with um, I met uh, the next uh, um, I, I met Marat Abdullah from Next NGO and he with the, with other guys who were just delivering stuff to uh, elderly people or uh, like single mothers, mm-hmm. just delivering food to them with their own cost, because they they know they knew that they need um, they need help. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the situation, the economic situation was really bad. Like in the first months, and it's, uh, it's not <laughs> it's not <laughs> it's not getting better, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we had like the terrible problem was like uh, the shelves in the stores were were half empty because. Mm-hmm. Uh, the logistic chains were were, were broken. Mm-hmm. The port was closed. The support was closed. Uh, mm, uh, so the logistic chains were broken, and people were not able to buy the foods because of there was delays with the with the with the with the pension with the mm-hmm. and with salaries with everything and prices went up of course. Mm-hmm. So a uh, lots of people needed help. And uh, lots of people fled uh, from occupied regions, from Kherson, from Donetsk region, from Kharkiv region. Lots of people came to Odessa, so there was lots of people who needed help, like like urgently immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, I that was my first encounter with the, and also I was uh, uh, when when someone approached me on the street and asked for the mo- for the money, I I, I never I I. I, I I give the money all the time because, like, well, you you never know. Money doesn't cost anything at this point. Uh, uh, lives matter. Money, money, money isn't like during the war. Mm-hmm. It was like it wasn't in the, just in the first months because there was a lot of people who really came from other cities and they didn't. Well, the, someone someone could could came like in, in in a big shiny car mm-hmm. and had iPhone but doesn't have any money because every he lost everything he lost house mm-hmm. job savings whatever I mean everything uh, I started to work like more closely with the humanitarian aid in uh, th- this year uh, I think since June I it just happened by chance because because I have uh, lots of friends in the in the volunteer movements mm-hmm. like like my good friend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, and I was I was helping a, a British couple who were uh, helping people in the occupied villages in Mykolaiv and in Kherson region. There was a, and there there still is a big problem with the drinking water, mm-hmm. so they were delivering water to them, uh, and uh, I was basically translating. Helping them with that and visiting the villages, the occupied villages. I also was able to like uh, make some stories about these people. And after that, I realized that like um, so there is a huge problem in the uh, there is a huge problem with the, how you are delivering. There is a huge problem with humanitarian aid, mm-hmm. and there is a huge problem with. Uh, well, war brought a lot of problems, right? So mostly, mostly the media is media uh, uh, covers the war crimes. So mm-hmm. the missile hit the building in Zaporizhia. The missile hit the building in Odessa, whatever, and that's it. But what happened after? What happened with the people who lived in this building? Uh, do they get new flats? Where did they Where did they live? Do they live in the street? Do they kill themselves? Mm-hmm. Do they get any like uh, psychological help? What are the stories? No, like no, big media are not interested in that. They are mm-hmm. interested in the war crimes and the big stories, but there are like small stories behind that. Yeah. And by like by telling these stories and uh, by uh, spreading information about uh, a couple in the in a, in a village in a destroyed village in the destroyed house who are who live in their camp beds, you can actually help them. You can you can you can bring. Uh, more attention to these problems, and you can, uh, and like in having this information, you can also turn to other NGOs. So, look, here are like the concrete people. They they do exist. They have real problem. Help them if you can. Uh, so there is a uh, the problem is with the spreading information about like uh, individuals who are in need or uh, about the places that 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 need like real uh, humanitarian aid. So there is a big problem with uh, with that. Because uh, these villages are distant, uh, and uh, like the big media are, are interested in big stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. How would you evaluate then, as a whole, the humanitarian response or the international humanitarian response in Ukraine, from your perspective as a journalist and as a volunteer? Well, it's. I mean, this is really like great movement because it is it is it is great, right? So lots of organizations came here to help. Uh, there are uh, individuals like small organizations like 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 the Sunflower Project, like like Dignity Aid, who are really doing stuff like real stuff. So they are helping real people, uh, and they're they're not. Uh, involved in this paperwork, but there are like huge organizations like Red Cross or uh, UNICEF or United Nations, and they are what they are doing. Or I can name some more, but I wouldn't do it. So what they're basically doing is they're just uh, like spreading the bureaucracy. They they'll multiply and papers, and uh, they have like huge stuff here. Which also and the people in this stuff they're also like like filling the forms, filling the papers, doing the needs assessment like for months, and after that they're doing another needs assessment because this needs assessment already already doesn't match the reality. So it's like end, endless circle of the of the paperwork, mm-hmm. and uh, they are like especially United Nations. They are driving here on the big shiny white armored cars because you know 
because like if they will be just uh, using like a normal Ukrainian car like Deolanos, uh, probably something would happen with them. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's like there is restrictions. You shouldn't use normal cars. <laughs> also, they pay, I, I know like for a fact that they like uh, uh, live in the apartments like for two thousand euros uh, cost amounts because like that's how you help, right? You came here to live in to drive a shiny cars, live in a nice apartments. And do do like the ridiculous amount of paperwork and have parties after that because you know you work so hard like the whole week. You you need the party because if you will not party, you will not be able to to well, do more to paperwork. Fair, to be fair, they do a lot of they they move a lot of material, right? They get a lot of stuff into the some country. Some of them, some, some of them apparently, assistance. some yeah. of them apparently do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But they could like they could have done it like more effective. Uh, also because they have more resources. Mm -hmm. So this this is the question of how resources are spent. Yeah. How they are used. Yeah. And that we can agree entirely. It's there is a lot of reform to be done. <clears throat> well, let's turn the page a little bit to the situation now. Um could you first talk about your day-to-day -day experience and what is like living under air raids and the possibility of mobilization and just sort of the day-to-day -day life as a Ukrainian man today? That's a, that's a good, that's a good question. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, I was waiting for, 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 for it to come. Day-to-day uh, -day life is beautiful. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's filled with, uh, it's filled with uh, great things, like like air raid alerts. Sometimes drones are blowing something up, like five hundred meters from you. You hear the boom. You 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 hear the windows broken. Uh, your house is sh your house is shaking. Uh, that's 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 beautiful. That's that's I mean that's our all. And also this, the um, when the air uh, anti what the what what is this the like? anti aircraft yeah 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 anti aircraft is working you can this is amazing you can actually gather as a, you can you can gather a crowd of people and and they're just just watch watch the sky like like being totally amazed of the amount of the firework you see you see in the sky and the explosions and like this is this is so romantic i i encourage everyone to go there to go here and and, and see it just just to experience because you know like tongue-in-cheek just to be clear <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, so we spend some time in shelters we spend a lot of time hearing bombs we spend some sleepless nights and you specifically as a man are uh, under quite a bit of pressure to go into the armed forces, right? Yes, I'm. Uh, I don't know how to how to call myself, how to call my situation. Well, uh, the Ukrainian authority, uh, Ukrainian authorities have the policy of uh, everyone that every man should serve in the army, and I think in January they passed a law that everyone who doesn't have a military papers. Uh, are not able to work legally in Ukraine. So basically, 
to get uh, military papers, you need to go to the recruit to, mil to the military recruitment office and said, okay, so I came here because I wanted to check. I want to be registered. Uh, can you please issue my military papers? And uh, like these days, it works like this: when you go to the military recruitment office, you are uh, sent to the army. Not 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 it it it, it not like uh, especially the front lines or. You're not sent to the front list, like it's not 100%, but you might find yourself there as well. Uh, so this is the way, this is the way to push like everyone to serve, because, well, if you can't work, then what else you can do, you know, mm -hmm. right? Because like in the army, they, they, they pay a salary at, at least. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a tricky, it's a tricky situation. It's a tricky question because... Um, the medical uh, exam that you should take before uh, they recruit you is a formality right now. Mm -hmm. So uh, they took, uh, there are cases which were published and reported. So they took one man with, with epilepsy and he died the next day, uh, just in the training, just, mm -hmm. just in the training center. So this is, that, I mean, this is, a, this is a fact. Mm -hmm. uh, I know uh, disabled people who were taken to the to the army and who are now in the front lines and uh so these things are happening because uh the medical exam will be uh, because they are told to like bring as much people as they can uh is it illegal yes mm -hmm. does anybody care no because it's hard even for for the people who were taken um into the army with the diagnosis, like with the well, diagnosis of disability, it's 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 hard to um, to challenge the decision of the of the uh, medical medical commission. Uh, it's hard to challenge. I don't know why it's hard to challenge. It, it, it looks like when you are in the army, it, this is just one way ticket, so you, you you can't really get out at this point because. Uh, these days, people well, uh, almost every soldier who uh, is in the front line uh, have uh, been uh, shell shocked like multiple times, and like if it was the uh, if it was not the war time, I mean, the, because because the war didn't start on twenty four February twenty two, the war started on in in twenty thousand fourteen. Mm -hmm. So, like in normal times, uh, the one who is shell shocked would be sent home. But uh, but now, like one week after the treatment, the shell shock soldiers is you know is on the in the positions, mm -hmm. or uh, the like the blast wounds, the firearm wounds. Uh, people from wounded people are also sent back, so they are not they are not sent home. Mm -hmm. uh, the like so this is the health problem, right? So the health problem is 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 is, is very. Uh, Mm. This is is critical. Mm -hmm. This this is not the only problem that uh, the army has right now. So, uh, uh, Ukraine has like a lot of support from the West uh, in terms of the equipment, uh, uh, weapons. It it's not enough. It's not enough to like overthrow the. Uh, Russian position like during the counteroffensive, it, mm -hmm. it, it, it's not enough. There is no doubt about it. But the question is like, uh, it is the second, it's the second year of the war, and uh, Ukraine not, also receives like 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 uh, 
funds from the West and from other partners, but the volunteers are still buying boots for the soldiers. The volunteers are still buying cars for the soldier for the soldiers. Mm -hmm. And um, if if not this huge volunteering movement inside inside Ukraine, uh, volunteers buying the, dr the drones for the soldiers as well. So uh, I don't know how we will be able to keep it up. And the question is, like, why the government is not uh, supporting the army properly? So we have one million army at this point, and uh, it's not uh, it's not well it's not well equipped. Mm -hmm. uh, the soldiers doesn't have the necessary things like drones because, like, if you have a reconnaissance drones, mm -hmm. drone you you can see like where where the where the enemy is, and uh, you can. Uh, keep more people alive so there will be less casualties like in your squad of course so do you feel like the lack of materiel for the armed forces is primarily the ca caused by corruption or by a lack of resources coming into it, the country or it available caused, it caused by the corruption it caused also by the uh, uh, inability to um, to create like logistics mm -hmm. for some reason but I mean they should have done it mm -hmm. by then uh, and also probably because like no like not there is not much care about uh, the units and the brigades and the soldiers from the military commandment from the highest military commandment because I mean well, they know they know about the, the, the these problems. I mean, even if I, as a civilian, know about these problems, they they they, they do. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that's a big question. That's a big question why they do not uh, create these logistic routes and uh, why they don't fight with the corruption, like uh, corruption in the military, in in the high level level and uh, in the level of some brigades as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, this will this may cause a lot of problems. You can't you can't w win the war when you are not do when when you're you're not doing your best. When not you're, you're not giving your best because well, that doesn't work like that. So speaking of which, how do you see the war going? We have pretty stable front lines since the retaking of Kharkiv and Kherson last year. Rus Russian offensive, Ukrainian counteroffensive, not making a lot of progress. You've talked about some problems with the military, the draft. Where do you see this going, perhaps, in the next few months or coming times? Well, uh, uh, yes, uh, you're perfectly right. So there is a stalemate at this point, uh, basically. And uh, to, to make any progress, uh, Ukrainian government should change the tactics or have any tactics because... At this point, uh, the tactics it looks like you just send more and more people uh, into the counteroffensive and uh, try to break the wall, which is uh, almost impossible to do because the the Russians build fortresses fortresses in the in the in the in the front line. And uh, the whole area is mined. The whole area uh, in front of the fortresses, in front of the Russian trenches, is mined. Like 
every inch is mined. It's not like uh, it's not the conventional uh, mining because like when you uh, mine the area in conventional way, uh, you need to be able to demine it. Mm -hmm. But they are not going to. I mean, the Russians are not going to uh, demine it. So uh, they just uh, shower it mines. They just it's it's swamped with mines. So mm -hmm. it's not possible to. To demine it like uh, it, it will take uh, it, it, it is taking a lot of efforts it is taking a lot of casualties and the, the small progress that we have like in the Zaporizhia region with uh, this uh, village of Robotine uh, it uh, it costs like a lot of uh, human lives and we don't know how many mm -hmm. Uh, if this is the tactics that uh, our government use and wants to use like further, then it's it's there, there is a question. So why? Because we don't have as much people as Russia has. So if uh, if uh, the Russian tactics was the same like since probably the first World War, mm -hmm. and it didn't change. Like they. Uh, spent like hundred thousand people in Stalingrad, in Stalingrad in the World War Two and the Second World War and uh, there are spent like lots of people in Ukraine to gain something they spend like thousands like ten, uh, thousands thousands of people uh, to to gain Bakhmut. They're now trying to they're now trying to gain Avdiivka with the same uh, with the same wages just just sending like more and more troops uh, Russians are trying to uh, conquer Avdiivka by the same way they conquered Bakhmut, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but <clears throat> like we all know what the Russian army is. We all know that uh, Russia is dictatorship, and uh, we know about the Russian tactics. If Ukraine is going to use the same tactics, there should be a question asked: Why you are we using these tactics? Mm -hmm. Are we not able to uh, find another way, like the, like? Because, like in a in a military sense, you you can't win like this in the long run. Mm -hmm. you, you you can have some uh, small victories, like like the village of Robotine, but to get further, you need to do something like that. Of course, we don't have enough. Like uh, the the counteroffensive, uh, <sighs> it's. Uh, the way uh, we are counterattacking right now, it's it's very hard and difficult because uh, we are using most infantry. Mm -hmm. But uh, we need to have planes. We need to have bombers and jets. We don't have them. Like we don't have F sixteen until this point. And there is no time. There is no like. Uh, and they wanted to counterattack as soon as possible, and they started. And they were promised, of course, of, of course, like the military, the military were promised with with, with more weapons and with with the, I think I think jets should have been here by now, mm -hmm. but it 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 didn't happen, and maybe it happened only like in nine months or something like mm -hmm. that. So uh, we need to we need to think about changing the military tactics because like just sending sending more and more people uh, to. To storm the 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 fortress and just stepping on the mine doesn't seem like a good way. Doesn't seem like a way to uh, gain victory. Well, we'll see where it goes.
little lighter question for our last one. Tell us about your organization, Save UA Media. What's the goals? What's your hopes for the future for that? Well, the, the Save UA Media uh, is a charity foundation and the website, it's a, it's a media project about the south region, about Odessa, Kherson and Mykolaiv. And I called it, uh, I, I started it, uh, I, I registered officially like one year ago. And I've, I've managed to create a website, I think in March last year, and took a lot of time just, just to create it, to fill it with articles. It's totally on, uh, it, it, has no, it has no funding, like zero funding, and it's just, it just an um, initiative, like independent initiative, because we don't have enough independent journalism in uh, this region specifically, and we don't have uh, like uh, English language uh, website about the region. And, uh, <clears throat> and I call this project as a project of hope, and since I started doing the volunteering work uh, this year and when I traveled to the deoccupied villages when I was in Kherson, I realized uh, that there is a there is a huge problem with uh, because nobody knows about the, the needs of these people. Nobody knows about the, uh, how bad situation is in the deoccupied villages and uh, in, in, in Kherson really. Uh, and uh, you need to. We need to spread information about that. Uh, when I was um, <clears throat> when I was nineteen or twenty, when I just uh, started my way in journalism, I wrote. Uh, I, I read a uh, re read a book of some of some Russian journalists, and it was like like something some introduction to journalism for the people who are who wanted to be journalists. Mm -hmm. And she wrote like. Well, the biggest disappointment that you will encounter that you will uh, when you are encountering with the problem, you can only describe it. But mm -hmm. you would want to help, but you are not able to. So this this is the way, like this is the way of the uh, Soviet or post-Soviet thinking. So you can't really do anything about about nothing. Mm -hmm. You can only, as a journalist, you can only. Uh, write about it mm -hmm. it's like uh, it's like the same thing which was like bothering me all the time uh, with the National Geographic channel in you know, the Discovery Channel when they have these programs about the animals and they film on some predator 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 whatever I, I forgot I forgot predator, the word yeah. predator so like like lion or um, or a cheetah, and they they kill some animal, or uh, and so they're not interrupted, so they're just they just uh, shooting their their videos. So it's it's like it's it's what journalists are supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. So they're just supposed to write about something and forget about it mm -hmm. and, and go to the next topic. But uh, like I want to do more, and I I want to by by writing about people's problems, I want to help solve them. For one thing is because when you have a touching story of someone of of some loss of someone who encountered some uh, loss during the occupation or the family was killed by the Russians or they lost everything like the house or they like um, encountered some terrible things uh, and you t you're telling this story like not like not like a robot not 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 like just like just 
you know it's ordinary ordinary or ordinary thing you may have uh, like some connection with some other people who who would want to help them and also like having this information you, you, uh, i i can share it with uh, other ngos who can actually help them and the whole the, the, the goal is to help people by spreading the information about their problems uh, and I, I call I call this project the project of uh, <laughs> of hope, kindness, and that uh, possibly um, leads to changes. Awesome. Well, Sergey, thank you, and thank you to our audience for being with us today. Don't forget to like and subscribe. You can visit dignityaidinternational.org to donate. A monthly donation helps us do humanitarian aid and support our podcast team. Also, visit Save UA Media. You can donate there to the cause that Sergei and other journalists are doing to bring up the problems and help the people of Ukraine. And Sergei, I just so appreciate you being with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. You're a good man. <laughs>